Yeah, so I'm going to start with strikes. Um, it wasn't hard uh, earlier this year to predict that there would be some sort of strike wave because, uh, you know, we had the lockdown, we had uh, Brexit, and therefore um, the shutting of doors and people going back uh, to various parts of um, Europe. So predicting some sort of um, explosion of um, pay demands, uh, I actually thought there would be um, workers not only defending, but um, making advances in this period. Either way, of course, what we've seen um, is something I didn't see coming um, earlier this year, and that is a huge increase in the rate of inflation. And of course, that's partially associated with Ukraine. So we have the role of um, accident, uh, but there are other factors clearly uh, involved uh, uh, as well. Either way, um, it's obvious that not only are we in the middle um, of some significant upturn um, in the class struggle, but all the signs are uh, that that will continue uh, throughout uh, this year. Um, who knows about uh, next year? And all you need to do is say, well, the latest um, figure uh, for projected inflation is 13%. Uh, um, and then you look at what uh, uh, workers mainly in the uh, public sector, but not only in the public sector, what they're actually being offered. And what you've got is pay offers, you know, of 2%, 3%, 5%, sometimes more. Nonetheless, what, what we see uh, is a situation um, of where workers are expected to take a real pay cut. And at the same time, we were told, weren't we, um, by Boris Johnson, remember 2019 and the general election, that the Tories were committed to, quote, unquote, a high-wage economy. And they were also committed to levelling up. Um, well, it was a lie. Of course it was. Um, you know, if you're genuinely committed to a high-wage uh, economy, the first thing you do is remove uh, the anti-trade union laws, which, you know, begin in 1980 and seem to follow one after the other, um, uh, you know, um, all the way through to David Cameron. Either way, um, we've also got on top of that um, a situation of where inflation is going to be fought uh, by the Bank of England uh, by raising um, interest rates. Um, so we've had a record rise in interest rates, and it's been true that we've had record lows of um, interest rates. And what ought to be added in that context is that, that has allowed not only lots of people to get uh, cheap mortgages, uh, i.e., you know, the interest rate they're paying on mortgages is around about just over. Uh, the rate of inflation that was, uh, but also it allowed large numbers of companies, I don't know how many, uh, but large numbers of companies, so-called zombie 
uh, uh, companies to survive. And so what we would expect uh, under these circumstances is not only a lot of people to find, you know, find it extraordinarily uh, difficult uh, to pay their mortgages if they haven't got a fixed rate uh, uh, mortgage, but also an awful lot of companies who've been relying on very low interest payments, these, these companies are going to find it impossible and will simply go out of uh, business. So really what uh, the Bank of England, the actual agenda um, um, is, is to up the rate of unemployment. So you go from a situation at the present where you've got a so-called tight uh, labour market, you know, I've already mentioned uh, Brexit, uh, to where you've actually got large numbers of um, um, unemployed and uh, basically um, workers are forced to take, yeah, below inf inflation uh, settlements, i.e. they're forced to take a real pay cut. Um, of course, so what we're seeing um, is just a whole number of, of strikes, vast majority in terms of the actual number of strikes um, ain't going to be uh, reported. Many of them ain't going to make it in terms of into a official statistics. They'll be happening. They'll be over uh, very quickly. And we know of that. Anyone who lives anywhere, you know, will be able to report that anecdotally uh, that workers have gone on strike for a day or several hours and they've then come to a settlement. Either way, then we've got other, other battles that are set piece uh, battles. So we all know, at least uh, surely, uh, if we live in uh, Britain, about the RMT strikes, we've got as left strikes, so the rails have been repeatedly closed, and that will continue um, throughout August. Um, we've also got um, Arriva bus, bus workers um, um, on strike in, in the northwest. Um, we've even had uh, barristers um, on strike. And the latest one, and I think that this uh, is important, is we've got uh, Felixstowe dockers uh, on strike. And that's the largest port, that's my understanding, uh, in Britain. Um, so that will, you know, impact in terms of um, imports um, that various firms have ordered, uh, but also exports um, um, will be affected. Um, uh, as well. So what is on offer is to the extent that we've got a summer left, um, uh, this will be a hot summer, not only in terms of the weather, uh, but also in terms of industrial action. And everything tells us that the hot summer will be followed by a hot autumn. And again, what I'm referring to is industrial action, not necessarily uh, the temperature. So how, how has the Labour Party uh, reacted uh, to this? Well, I think it wouldn't be unfair to say uh, they've reacted with horror um, because the last thing um, the Labour Party wants, and I'm talking about the front bench, uh, is a whole series of um, strikes and uh, worker uh, uh, protests. And we've seen Sir Keir, because he's now a responsible politician, order his uh, front bench not to go um, on picket uh, lines. And we've seen at least two shadow ministers break that. We've seen one shadow minister uh, sacked. 
worthwhile. Uh, I don't know if anyone else um, looks at the Times, but uh, the Times has got an article which you will chuckle about because uh, it will um, remind you of uh, Sir Keir's posturing uh, when we had the uh, Labour leadership contest to replace Jeremy Corbyn. This is 2020. So only a couple of um, years ago. Remember, Sakir was saying that he would um, um, continue to uphold the um, economic program of Corbyn's uh, 2019 uh, manifesto. And also he made, <laughs> I never saw it, <laughs> apparently he made a video uh, talking about his long history of standing up for striking workers going all the way back to striking miners. I presume that was uh, 1991, uh, could have been 19, uh, you know, uh, 1994, but I doubt it. Either way, he apparently stood up for striking miners, striking seafarers, and you name it, he was um, there um, with workers um, in struggle. Now he doesn't want to be seen in a mile um, of a picket line. Well, the reason is pretty obvious. And that is, of course, he was never committed uh, to, for whatever it's worth, Corbyn's um, election manifesto. He was never uh, going to uphold it. He was always going to dump it. It was always uh, a pose. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that uh, what Sakir wants is to be seen as a responsible politician by the mainstream media to be seen as a responsible politician uh, by employers. Um, and what he's gonna do in terms of trade unions uh, is simply this, um, that who would you rather be prime minister? A prime minister you know, that will not introduce more um, you know, anti-trade union laws, um, but will be interested in coming to a settlement, a reasonable settlement would be the phrase uh, with the trade unions and workers who've been hit by the cost of uh, living uh, crisis. And my guess is that at the end of the day, most trade union leaders uh, will shrug their shoulders and say, well, given the election system, we would prefer a Labour government to a Tory government, not least when we have um, two Tory leadership uh, contenders not only um, competing over tax cuts, who's going to introduce them, when they're in, in, going to introduce them, uh, but also uh, competing in terms of who's going to be tough um, on the unions, who's, who's more in the tradition uh, of Margaret uh, Thatcher. And of course, what Liz Trust has come out, and she's the lead uh, candidate, what she's come out with uh, is this idea following Grant Shapps um, of saying that perhaps we'll um, increase the threshold um, required to call a strike. And what we'll do is impose some sort of minimum service requirement um, on um, vital uh, services. Worthwhile, I mean, people have played the game and I know it's uh, um, sort of a bit of a cheap trick, but it, it could be worthwhile looking at the Tory leadership contest itself. The Tories purportedly have around about 150,000 members. Uh, will Liz Truss actually get over 50% of the vote? And I'm not talking about 50% compared with uh, Rishi. I'm talking about an overall vote. 
you ask the question and you, you might actually get an answer that she actually gets 49%, 40%. Uh, we know in most general elections uh, that the successful candidate doesn't get 50%, uh, even of the votes cast, uh, let alone potential uh, votes cast. And that's the sort of um, hurdle uh, that Liz Truss is talking about putting in front of trade unions um, if they're going to organize a strike action uh, that's legal um, under present uh, uh, law. And of course, in response uh, to that, and it does look like Liz Truss uh, will be uh, elected and will become Tory leader and therefore Prime Minister in September, Mick Lynch, RMT General Secretary, has said that he will fight uh, to get the TUC uh, to call a general strike. Um, well, uh, my own response to that was, well, okay, good on you, uh, Mick, but you know and I know that it's very unlikely uh, that the TUC will call a general strike. Of course, it depends what you mean by a general strike. After all, general strikes are not because of Margaret Thatcher, uh, not because of David Cameron, but going way back, I think, to 27, 1927, general strikes uh, in Britain are actually illegal. Um, that was a piece of legislation the eventual Tories passed um, after the um, 10 days uh, of the general strike. Either way, of course, it's quite conceivable that they will call a day of action um, most days of action that I've been along, you know, tend to be a bit Hyde Parky and you go along and listen to a lot of militant, angry speeches by various general secretaries. And then it's all over and you go back home and uh, the employers, the, the government shrugs its shoulder and says, well, it's business as, as usual. The difference between a 24 hour general strike, which is in essence a protest strike, nothing wrong. Uh, with that, nothing to dismiss or you know look down upon, uh, and a, an indefinite general strike is, of course, an indefinite general strike poses uh, the question of power, of uh, state power, uh, which we will come to. So, what I wanted to do is just take uh, several steps back. Um, if you've got your weekly worker this week, um, I know you can look at it uh, on the web if you haven't, but if you've got your weekly worker, what your note is um, a supplement written by myself. This is a sort of updated version, I think, of um, an article uh, that I first wrote from 1992. This was, uh, I was working, I think I was going to produce a pamphlet of some sort, I can't quite remember. Either way, this is after the last gasp of the miners in 1991. And I can't remember how many supplements um, I wrote, but this was the first supplement in a series that included 1926 and also um, 1968, Paris, uh, 1968. Either way, uh, we thought it was useful um, to produce uh, this supplement. It's been updated, it's been cut uh, compared with um, the last, its last outing, uh, which had uh, a polemic against um, Socialist Party or Militant, I can't remember, and also the SWP. Basically, we cut that. Anyway, the, the point I'm making 
um, is that it is worthwhile looking back at the history of Marxism in relationship uh, to this general strike slogan. And what's interesting about it is, of course, we have a young Frederick Engels writing his classic uh, study, The Condition of the Working Class in England. He wrote that in 18, well, it was published in 1845. Remember, Engels was based up in Manchester, and this would be the most advanced city um, on the planet uh, at the time. Here was industrial capitalism uh, unleashed, uh, and here was someone who's come over from Germany um, um, to run the family uh, factory, uh, and he's obviously on the left, he's radical, uh, and he's horrified um on the one hand by what he sees but he's also inspired um on the other hand because here's the future here's the future not only uh for britain uh but the world and uh, in terms of the the relevance of the general strike is that uh, he wrote this uh, book what would it be three years after uh, we'd seen the first modern um proletarian uh, general strike um, so if we go back um, a little bit to 1839, what we have is the world's first working class party, the Chartist um, movement, deciding uh, to call what uh, or commit itself to what they call the holy month. And as I say in the, the supplement, this is nothing to do with worshipping uh, Big G up there in, in heaven. This was a holy month. Uh, where the workers would all go on strike, uh, the strike could last a month. And what they expected is in the course of that month, because they'd saved up their money, the workers ain't going to starve. Uh, what they expected is the employers and the state uh, to come, come to them uh, to concede their demands. Um, that's what they expected uh, with this um, month-long uh, general strike. Well, as it turns out, in 1842, um, I think the, uh, I should put it, the facts are, aren't quite straightforward, but as I understand it, uh, this is partially from more recent books, but also from Engels's account, what we have is on the one side this, on the one side that, half, of, you know, half a dozen of one and six of another, what we have is a situation uh, where workers are uh, under attack in terms of their basic paying conditions. And we also have uh, employers uh, who want to get one over on um, the governing class. And the governing class uh, is the landed aristocracy um, who've uh, imposed the corn laws, which means a high price of uh, bread, uh, which also means uh, that the employers, the capitalist employers, are having to pay extra uh, from their point of view, for wages. So they want get to get rid of the corn laws. Uh, they want to get in cheap American uh, grain uh, in order to actually keep wages the same or even lower them. Either way, what we have is a situation of where, in part, uh, um, the capitalist class is sort of pushing uh, the workers uh, into political action over the corn laws, and in part, the workers are acting uh, in their own interests uh, as well. Either way, uh, what we see is a general strike. I think it involves something like half a million uh, people. That's a lot of people. Remember, we're talking about a Britain 
maybe with a population of 20 million or something like that at the time, lots of people still working in agriculture and, you know, servants and uh, all the rest of it. Either way, that general strike spreads and covers workers from Dundee uh, um, down to South Wales, um, London, uh, the Midlands. Um, so all the industrial heartlands uh, of Britain. And what we see is the workers, uh, instead of merely taking their anger out uh, against the aristocracy, the government, uh, they also tackle hated employers, local hated employers. And one of the tactics they used to use in those days uh, was you take a particular hated employer. Uh, anyone who's read uh, E.P. Thompson will know this or Hobsbawm will know this. You burn them down, you burn their factory down or you burn their house down. And this basically puts the frighteners on uh, the other capitalists. Remember, we're dealing with small, relatively small capitalists um, and they will concede. That's the idea. And they also went uh, for workhouses, you know, where the poor um, end up when you're on your uppers and men and women be separated. Horrible, deliberately horrible regime to avoid <laughs> they basically wanted people to be desperate to go into these places either way workers would then burn down uh, these workhouses and of course what happens in Preston is the bourgeoisie decide maybe this isn't such a good idea and uh, they get their retainers they get their you know um, their hangers on uh, to join up uh, in terms of uh, the volunteer police militia uh, and they shoot the workers uh, uh, down. Either way, uh, the general strike um, uh, happened. And what is interesting for our purposes is that Engels basically says, well, um, one, uh, as an idea, as a strategy for liberation, it's clearly misplaced. Uh, the capitalist class um, isn't going to allow uh, such a general strike, and nor is the governing class and what you'll have is a situation where workers will be sacked um, or the governing class pass more anti-trade union laws allowing them to confiscate your funds um, they will send the police against you they could send the army uh, against you but they're not going to give in are they uh, to this month-long uh, general strike that's Ingalls's basic uh, message and, and theoretically he argues uh, that if you could do such a thing there are easier ways uh, to come to power. If you could actually do that, you'd already uh, be in power. And what we need to emphasize here um, is you know, what workers were fighting for in 1839 and in 1842. There was economics involved, that's certainly true, but what they're fighting for is the charter. They're fighting for the vote. This is a political uh, strike. And what the Chartist movement uh, was fighting for um, is universal male suffrage. Um, in Scotland, apparently, I read, I mean, I don't know, but I have read that the slogan was read universal suffrage. And of course, from a Marxist point of view, that's exactly our slogan. But what we should note is Tony Cliff, in his writings on this question, uh, describes that demand as a moderate demand. You know, the SWP and IS tradition uh, what you do is set something up like, for example, uh, stand up <laughs> to racism. Well, who isn't against racism nowadays? So you set something up that who could disagree 
with it. I mean, you might find someone who thinks that racism is a good idea, you know, and would openly declare it. So the idea is you start with a moderate demand and then you fight for that moderate demand in a militant fashion and you recommend strike action and general strikes and uh, that sort of type approach. Well, Tiny Cliff gets 1839, 1842 completely wrong. The fact of the matter is that in 1839 and 1842, the demand for universal suffrage is a revolutionary demand because this demand would have put the Chartists in a position where they were the majority in the House of Commons and uh, therefore were gonna clash uh, head on with the House of Lords, head head on uh, with the monarchy, with the state machine. Uh, what would then happen? Uh, I don't know, but you had uh, a very important wing uh, of the Chartists that had the slogan that we have every week in the Weekly Worker, peacefully if we can, violently if we must. So uh, the Chartists had no illusions in the monarchy, the House of Lords, the army, uh, the peelers, uh, they were prepared to use force. And they would have used force in the name of uh, democracy, which was still a dirty word amongst uh, many people at the time. Um, but in the name of democracy, uh, they would have come to power. And Tony Cliff just doesn't get that. He, he looks around at a, a Britain today. Remember, he comes from Palestine and he, he, he you know, he looks at Britain and says, the vote? What's that? That's, that's something that we, we've got everywhere. Well, except Switzerland and, uh, you know, weird countries uh, like that. But in the advanced capitalist countries, you know, in 19, whenever the hell it happens to be uh, that he comes over to Britain, 47, 48, that sort of comes to my mind. You know, what's so radical um, about the demand for universal suffrage? Well, today, nothing. And of course, what, what, we, what we also have in 1839, 1842, is this thing called a P, a party uh, that could come to power, or at least I shouldn't say that, should, could get off, not office even, I should correct myself again, but get a parliamentary majority, a party called the Chartist uh, Party. So there was nothing moderate about these demands. These demands were revolutionary, and Engels understood that. And Karl Marx um, understood that. So if you look at the Communist Manifesto, which again was written in this period, 1848, Marx, call it Marx, Marx Engels talks about forming the workers into a class. Well, the Chartists had done that. The Chartists had formed, formed the workers uh, into a class. Anyway, uh, uh, to carry on uh, the argument, what we have is a situation in 1873 where Engels writes his pamphlet, The Bakuninists at Work. And this is in the aftermath of this split uh, in the International, uh, the Hague uh, Congress, uh, the only one attended by Marx. Uh, and uh, what we have is the expulsion of the Bakuninists. They used to be called the Alliance for Social Democracy. This is Bakunin's uh, outfit um, that purportedly was libertarian against the statism of uh, Marx and his uh, followers because they wanted the dictatorship of the proletariat. And uh, the anarchists, uh, the Bakuninists, uh, didn't want anything to do with authority or politics or anything like that. 
Uh, but as was shown later, uh, um, after the publication, I think, of the Bakuninists at work, a load of documents come to light uh, that show the true nature of the Bakuninists, uh, which underlies even further uh, their dishonesty um, and their attempt to manipulate uh, the working uh, class. Either way, what we have in uh, Engels's pamphlet is basically a reiteration um, of his um, 1845 attack, criticism on the general strike, uh, because he says that uh, over there in Geneva, uh, where the anarchists have been having their international conference, um, they uh, uh, are sticking with this idea of a general strike. And you see the same um, argument from 1845 repeated. My guess is that he must have written uh, this pamphlet um, in the rush, uh, because the fact of the matter is that what they actually agreed in uh, Geneva uh, wasn't a holy month, um, wasn't um, a one-off uh, general strike. It was, um, how should you put it, an approach that said one strike can start it, then it can be a strike wave, then it can be a general strike. And it's from there that you have uh, the barricades and you go to the barricades. And um, as Bakunin himself did at one point, I think in Lyon, you get up on the, um, you know, some <laughs> a prominent uh, public building and you, you get out your piece of paper and you announce the abolition um, of uh, the state. And that was what um, Engels's um, 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 pamphlet was mainly directed at, the farcical nature of anarchism, because here we've seen a crisis in Spain and the anarchists abandoned their program of not participating in government. They're participating in governments along with the bourgeoisie on a cantonal uh, level, on a local level, on a council uh, uh, level. And the counter-revolution in Spain just takes them out one by one because the one principle they stuck by is federalism. Um, everything must be local. Everything must be uh, devolved uh, downwards. And that proved fatal uh, in Spain. Counter-revolution uh, triumphed. And of course, what we have is uh, Marx and Engels desperately struggling uh, for the honour of the international. Um, the international had been moved to America to basically let it die a peaceful death but uh, you know because it had been deserted by the uh, british trade unionists um, we had rebellion uh, by the anarchists uh, the defeat of um, the movement in in france either way as i say my guess is that engels wrote this pamphlet in in the rush so what we have in marxism in terms of classical marxism it should be emphasized, is, is, is a view uh, that can be, you know, um, summed up uh, by the general secretary of the German Social Democratic Party's right winger, uh, when he said, I won't do it, try it in German, but when he said general strike, general lunacy, uh, that would have been the general view um, of uh, Marxists. Now it's true, uh, that in this period you did see general strikes in various countries and the general strikes, I think there were two of them in Belgium, for example, where Marxists surely uh, participated uh, in it um, in order to get the franchise expanded. I, I can't see anarchists exactly going for 
a general strike to get the franchise expanded when they say, well, the votes are a waste of time and uh, we don't want anything to do uh, with parliament or authority. Either way, uh, that would have been um, the general consensus uh, amongst Marxists. Now, there were exceptions, um, but really things changed uh, with 1905, the, the, the Russian Revolution. And it's worthwhile just looking at uh, the Russian Revolution and Lenin's uh, writings about it. To sum it up, though, what you had is a whole series of strikes uh, that amounted to general strikes. There wasn't um, a situation where they'd accumulated huge funds to pay out, you know, uh, strike pay. Uh, but this was combined um, with demands from the party uh, for an insurrection. And so um, if you take the Bolsheviks, which I think went into 1905 with something like 8,000 members, remember they're a faction of the RSDLP, the biggest faction, but one of a number. Uh, there were the Mensheviks, but the Bund ought to be mentioned. The Poles, the Letts also ought to be uh, mentioned. Uh, but if you look at Lenin, what he's saying um, in 1905 is the general strike as an independent means of struggle has run out of its usefulness and it needs to be combined, must be combined with preparations for an armed uprising. We must arm the working class. The Mensheviks said, no, we must arm the working class with the idea of arming. Um, well, that's something we do uh, today. Um, this was a revolutionary uh, situation and it posed the question uh, of power and what we saw in 1905 is the peak of this struggle was Moscow not Petrograd where Trotsky was in charge of um, the Soviet it was Moscow which was led by the Bolsheviks they staged an uprising there were uprisings elsewhere there were mutinies uh, but at the end of the day um, Tsar had um, settled uh, the Japanese war, brought in fresh troops, uh, and that was the end. That didn't mean uh, that there was an instant reaction and uh, political activity ceased. What is interesting, actually, if you look at the figures, is that both factions, Bolsheviks and Mensheviks and other factions as well, grow considerably, um, not only in 1905, but 1906, 1907. And I think the reaction comes in 1908, that sort of period when there's a real clampdown and people are arrested, you know, sent to Siberia, go back in exile and, and all the rest of it. Either way, um, um, what I'm emphasizing um, here uh, is that Marxism um, should be flexible. In other words, although we begin with a, a background where the general strike is, is general lunacy, uh, what Russia showed uh, is that it can be a legitimate and very powerful tactic um, in terms of uh, making revolution, or for that matter, uh, in terms of other aims that one uh, may have. And I'm not going to give you, going to go, thank God, I'm not going to uh, go on from 1905 <laughs> every year after. Suffice to say, what I did is um, um, have a look at this week's um, socialist and this week's socialist worker, because I, I thought I'd get some interesting reading and I did. Um, so looking at the socialist, um, I did a, um, a word find on, on the paper, looked up you know, 10 mentions of the general strike. 
So that was quite interesting. Of course, I read every one. And what was good about it is that they are not only in terms of repeating workers' demands today for the TUC to call a general strike, this is reflecting Mick Lynch, but they also look back uh, in terms of history. And that history included, somewhat strangely in my view, uh, 72, the Pendenville Five, uh, but also the winter of discontent, 79. Um, interestingly, uh, the author in The Socialist describes uh, 1972 as semi-spontaneous. Um, that's just rubbish. Um, in 1972, uh, five dockers were locked up under Edward Heath's um, um, what do they call it? Industrial Relations Act, the IRA. And uh, these five dockers deliberately got themselves arrested. It was basically uh, two fingers to you, come and get us. We are going on strike. We're the leaders of this strike. They arrested them. And what happened is, is that this organization called the Liaison Committee for the Defense of Trade Unions says that other workers should come out on strike in solidarity with the dockers and the imprisoned five. And that's what happened. It wasn't spontaneous. People went round, I was one of them as a young man, and I went round with my CPGB comrades uh, who tended to be you know, the secretary of the local trades council, convener of this, shop steward that. And we went to building sites, we went to factories, asked to speak to the convener or the shop steward. And they literally, I mean, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Uh, they would go inside uh, the building site and then they were just, uh, people just walked out. People just came out. And uh, what we had is a situation, a whole numbers of industries uh, were shut down and the TUC itself threatened to call a 24 hour general strike uh, in solidarity with the Pentonville Five. And suddenly, I'd never heard of him before, the official solicitor announced that these people were going to be released. I hadn't heard of the official solicitor up to that point. Most people hadn't. Uh, this wasn't the government, you understand, caving in. Ha, ha, ha. No, no, no. It was some legal official uh, that apparently intervened. Why? I don't. Well, we all know the truth. And a few years later, uh, the Prime Minister, Ted Heath, um, 1974, went to the country, said, who rules, the trade unions or your legitimate Tory government? And the voters turned around and said, well, it's not you. Uh, they voted in a Labour uh, government. But it is worthwhile reminding ourselves in this period that uh, IS, International Socialists, the forerunners of the SWP, were against the call for a, a, a general strike, were actually opposed uh, a general strike call. Uh, why, I can't remember, uh, but I do remember them opposing the general strike call in the 90s. Uh, we had, or was it the, no, it wasn't, it was, I, I correct myself, in the 80s. This is around the great miners' strike, uh, which lasted a year. We had Chris Harmon uh, coming in and explaining to us, that if you call for a general strike, you must also call for defence guards. You must protect this general strike. And we went like, uh, well, that's what we've been doing. And that's what the miners have been doing. You had these things called hit squads. So they didn't, you know, <laughs> they didn't ignore that. And we certainly didn't ignore uh, that. Anyway, um, what do we have in Socialist Worker? Instead of the call for general strike uh, now, 
what we have is comrade Judy Cox uh, writing about 1842. And I'm not going to bore you with the whole article because I've already bored you with my rendition of 1842. What I'll simply do is quote her conclusion, because her conclusion is that what 1842 proves is that, quote unquote, power lies in the workplace. Well, the workers were on strike. They were out of the workplace, Judy. So you go on strike, you're not in the workplace. I mean, her, her, her conclusion seems to be the exact opposite to Frederick Engels, right? Frederick Engels is saying, you know, the employers, uh, the governing class ain't gonna collapse because you go on strike. But Judy seems to be concluding that if you go on strike, you know, enough of you and for long enough, the employers collapse and the government collapses uh, and then you step into power. Well, precisely as Engels said, no, it's very unlikely to happen. And 1842 proves the exact opposite uh, to that. That's why Engels is actually a champion of the charter, of the charters, of political action, of standing candidates uh, in elections, of making the demand, hey, that's radical, isn't it? Uh, for a popular militia, a popular militia uh, that in Engels's view, remember his Can Europe Disarm uh, pamphlet, where he doesn't argue in the pamphlet, he argues elsewhere, hey, such a popular militia um, would be best suited for rank and file rebellion, mutiny. That's what we uh, advocate. And if we look at 1917, of course there are general strikes. Of course there are many, many general strikes. But also what we see um, is the use of the election tactic. The Bolsheviks uh, are increasingly successful, both in the, how should you put it? I'll use the term bourgeois um, electoral field, you know, local governments and all the rest of it, but also in the Soviets. So we know the Bolsheviks end up with a majority in Moscow and um, St. Petersburg or Petrograd, as it was then called. But also what they do when they go for it, uh, this isn't the general strike. This isn't workers coming out of the factories. It's the army and the Red Guards uh, that deliver the blow to the provisional government. So I'm not, not a Maoist and saying that all political power grows out of the barrel of a gun, but guns matter, Judy. And precisely if we look at the lessons of 1905, but above all the successful lessons of 1917, you've got to split the army. You've got to neutralize some sections of the army You've got to win over the army and you need to be armed yourself. That's actually what 1842, that's the lesson of 1842. So all you can say is today, today's left um, bear a sort of canny resemblance or an uncanny resemblance, I should say, uh, to the anarchists and very little resemblance uh, to orthodox uh, Marxism. Just finally, um, showing the period that we're living in, uh, this is the sort of, not the strap in the socialist, but uh, one of the advertised, you know, like this is what this article is all about. How about this? General strike, class battles, revolution and socialism are back on the agenda. Well, I don't think they ever went off the agenda myself. Um, either way, I know what they mean, but it's not true. Um, you know, the idea um, that there's going to be a revolution anytime soon, I'm afraid, 
uh, isn't the case. What we need to be concentrating on, comrades in SPEW and the SWP, is the party uh, question. We need a party, uh, not a whole series of sects that pretend they are the party and don't talk about each other and appear before the working class as if they are the party, when everyone knows that what we have is a huge number of different groups calling themselves party. Anyway, where are we up to in terms of time? Getting short. So the rest of it, I shall, yeah, I've only got two items, so I shall be brief. Nancy Pelosi, why did she do it? I don't know. Uh, clearly, though, what we have uh, in the United States is a broad partisan consensus uh, when it comes to foreign policy. Yes, you had Trump saying, oh, God, this is a bit crazy. Um, and you had Joe Biden saying, you know, and I presume that was sincere. Uh, don't go, uh, Nancy. And I presume Nancy would have been visited by CIA and Defense Department officials saying, well, look, this is what's going to happen. So, you know, um, one presumes that the United States and Taiwan look at what China's doing now and say, well, that's what you would have expected, wouldn't it? Why uh, would you expect it? Well, it's because um, since 1949, the world, the world, the so-called world community recognizes one China, this one China. And so the United States said when the Kuomintang or Guomintang government uh, fled from Beijing and went to Taipei uh, over the water, that was the government of all of China. It wasn't the government of Taiwan. It was the government of all of China. And that, that government in Taipei um, had a UN Security Council seat. So along with the nuclear powers, of the Soviet Union, France, Britain, and the United States, there sat this China, this Guomintang uh, uh, China, which of course was just a puppet um, of the United States. So the United States in effect had uh, four votes on the UN Security Council, where they can veto resolutions, and the Soviet Union had one vote on the UN Security Council. It should be pointed out that uh, when it came to the General Assembly, I think the Soviet Union had, um, was it three or four seats? Because it had, um, Ukraine had a separate seat. White Russia had a, Belarus, as it was called. I think, anyway, I won't bother with that. Anyway, my, my main point is that that changed in 72. And what you had is the Nixon visit to China, uh, the rapprochement between the United States and uh, China, real China. And what the Americans adopted is a position of ambiguity. Uh, but nonetheless, what you saw after 72 uh, was um, Taiwan um, losing its Security Council seat, China uh, gaining its Security Council seat. Um, and the United States then has this, well, we, we just differ with China. They have a, um, an ambassador in Beijing but they don't have an ambassador in Taipei. They'll have something else. I don't know what, but it's not an ambassador. That's the important thing to grasp. So for China, this is an internal matter, right? It's a bit like, you know, I mean, the equivalent, if the, if the entire world, I don't know what the capital of um, Alaska is. Is it um, um, Anch Anchorage or anyway, whatever the capital of um, 
Alaska is. It's as if the, you know, as if the rest of the world recognized uh, Alaska as the real government of the United States. I think the United States would be rather pissed off uh, with that. So Nancy Pelosi visits uh, Taipei and expresses her solidarity. And for China, this is an internal matter. And clearly what China recognizes, it's not just one um, important uh, figure in US politics, number three in the hierarchy turning up. What matters is clearly what's going on is a distancing by the United States from its 1972. So it's becoming uh, less ambiguous uh, than it was in 72. It's moving towards a de facto, uh, um, um, how should we put it, to China policy. It's not going to say it, uh, but that's what China sees. And it's quite right to see it. Uh, so from China's point of view, it looks at Ukraine and doesn't see simply uh, Putin making, in my humble opinion, a blunder uh, by going in. And note the United States doesn't do anything in terms of trying to get a peace deal together or uh, call for an international summit or, or anything. It's quite content uh, to let uh, Ukraine fight. And certainly after the first initial phase, it's very keen um, on Ukraine uh, fighting. Because, of course, what China sees uh, in that is some sort of um, great plan, whether it's feasible or not, is a different matter, uh, not only to defeat Russia in Ukraine, uh, but to see regime change in Moscow. I do emphasize regime change, not Putin, but a new regime, a color revolution, an Alvani, the dividing up of uh, Russia, maybe some new Boris Yeltsin, but a sellout regime to America, uh, the collapse of the Russian economy, um, uh, you know, deindustrialization, a way it can't have a, an effective arms industry. And then you have a situation where China, to all intents and purposes, is surrounded, and you use uh, Taiwan, you use Tibet, you use Xinjiang and the, the Uyghurs, you use maybe Inner Mongolia, you use Hong Kong, you use everything you've got uh, in order to um, tear China apart. That's what the Chinese see uh, coming. Will there be a war? Well, there could be, uh, because accidents happen. We've got you know, ships doing this, we've got planes uh, uh, doing that. So that's conceivable. My own belief, what it's worth, and uh, hey, I'm not trying to be some sort of great uh, predictor, but for what it's worth, I don't think that China wants to go for it at the moment, uh, because I think in spite of what uh, I've read in the Weekly Worker and elsewhere, I don't think uh, China is going to win this one. I just cannot see uh, how China uh, can invade, uh, successfully invade Taiwan. Um, to do that, you need air superiority and you need to dominate the sea. Well, at the moment, the United States has got air superiority and it dominates the sea. It's not the Chinese Navy that's patrolling off the coast of Florida. It's the, it's the American Navy that's patrolling off the coast uh, of China. That, that's the reality of it. And I've, I've read that Dan Lazar's, I think Dan is here today, he's not here today. I've read Dan, Dan's uh, figure, and well, it's certainly true that the Chinese Navy is bigger than the United States, but that's like equating you know, a tugboat with an, a nuclear aircraft carrier. You know, China's got one aircraft carrier, uh, an ex-Soviet one, and I think it's got another one 
uh, on its way. I don't know how many aircraft carriers the United States has got, but it's just got overwhelming still military superiority. And that's just uh, the fact uh, of the matter. So if you think back, not saying it, many of us were around, but you think back to the, um, the Allied invasion of France, um, you know, the Normandy landings. Well, the first thing that they had to do is establish air superiority. If the RAF and the um, United States Air Force didn't have air superiority, the fleet that was taking those men over to Normandy, to those beaches, just would have been wiped out. And that would happen to the, the, the PLA, People's Liberation um, Army. So I don't think that's going to happen. Does that mean we discount the possibility of war? I would argue no, quite the opposite. But I don't think that we're going to see simply, you know, one army there, one army there and bang. Uh, the United States will go in for uh, um, an operation to pull China apart. That's my take on it um, anyway. And lastly, sort of illustrating what the hell is going on session. Ukraine, what the hell is going on this week in the Weekly Worker? Um, our gallant correspondent is talking about the forthcoming Ukrainian offensive in the south. They're going to drive down and recapture Kherson. Uh, we've had these missiles landing on uh, bridges, these um, um, new American missiles that have been supplied, so they're accurate and um, um, they can slam into a bridge um, as opposed to, you know, scattergun uh, approach. And now we're told uh, that it's a Russian offensive uh, that is taking place in the south and in the east. Well, quite frankly, I don't damn well no. I mean, I, I simply don't know. Um, I'm not going to stop there because I'm going to go into something else I don't know. And I'm not going to try to pronounce it. But, but hey, here we go. I'll embarrass myself. The Zaporizhia nuclear plant. So, hey, deeply gone pink red uh, with that one. I don't know what it means in Ukrainian. Um, but you know what I'm talking about. Now, apparently, this nuclear plant, well, that's, you know, not apparent, is it? It's, it's, that's near enough a fact that you can get in Ukraine at the moment. This is held by Russian troops because these, the Russian authorities have been attacked for stationing troops near this nuclear power station and hiding in its shadow sort of type idea. So it's occupied by uh, Russian forces and is still in operation and the people operating it partially for safety reasons, I would guess, but also perhaps to supply power uh, are Ukrainian technicians. Now, that's all I know. Uh, on the other hand, then we have the story uh, that Russia has bombarded this nuclear power station. I'm going, what? Why would any commander order his forces to bombard a position of where my troops are hiding it doesn't make sense uh, to me. So if anyone knows what the truth is, um, I would be interested uh, because what we have is Russia saying, yes, it was the Ukrainians. Um, well, that makes sense, crazy, uh, but at least it makes sense. So there you are. If you're a Ukrainian commander and you look at an army uh, that's stationed, I don't know, 10 miles down the road or whatever the geography happens to be and they're in range, you order your guys to fire off um, some rounds to hit them. Um, well, yeah, that makes sense. But the other way around just doesn't make any uh, sense to me whatsoever. So if anyone knows or anyone thinks they know 
the truth, I would be interested. But I think I'm trying to illustrate the fog of war question, that it is very hard to actually know what the truth is. And I'm certainly not going to get into um, the last massacre, who did what, and I really know the truth. None of us know the truth. None of us uh, know the truth. And we, I, I don't think it's healthy for the left to line up on either side and say, this was the Ukrainians, that was the Russians. I think in a war, atrocities happen atrocities will happen on both sides and it's not the left's job uh, to apportion blame and pretend it knows the truth lastly in respect of nuclear power because this is very relevant in the present period in terms of the energy crisis with new plans to build new plants um, look at what's going on in ukraine and tell me that nuclear power is safe it's not safe and i know um, after 9-11, um, you know, there have been all sorts of moves to encase nuclear plants um, in concrete and protect them. Uh, but look at this plant in Ukraine. It's open to be hit by an artillery shell, uh, let, a, let alone a Boeing 747 or two or three Boeing 747s. And, um, you know, um, they're proposing to build more. Uh, this is not a safe uh, technology. It's a deadly uh, technology. Um, and I'm not going to bother to go into the costs and all the rest of it. Uh, suffice to say, it's one of the most expensive forms of energy, as well as perhaps uh, the most dangerous when it goes wrong. And um, I know more people die in coal mining and you know, from disease and all that. I know all that. But when you have a nuclear accident, they can be big and they can be very dangerous. And all we need to do is look up the road to Chernobyl, which was also recently in the news, and just see the effect of Russian uh, lorries uh, kicking up dust and it being detected in Sweden. Uh, just so many years after uh, the event. Uh, anyway, enough. That's it, Ollie. Thank you very much.